Hello, I'm Andrew Monroe. Welcome to Drinking with Freelancers. I started this podcast because in my work, I meet a lot of other amazing freelancers and entrepreneurs who share with me cool experiences, stories, and advice. And I really wanted to help share these moments with the rest of the world. This is episode three, and today I have the joy of being joined by Eric McRae. Hi, Eric. Hi, Andrew. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm fantastic. So yeah, this will be the first time in a very long time I feel I've been able to have a conversation across a table from somebody, even at this distance. Yeah, especially with the two of us. I mean, it's been quite a while since COVID and the whole lockdown since yeah. we've been able to. And the lovely thing about it is you brought in some rum. We brought some rum. Today we are sharing a bottle of Mount Gay Eclipse. Yeah. It is a rum from Barbados. Established um, in 1703. Yeah. And I think the the first thing that everyone that has had a sip of this can agree on is it's smooth. It is extremely smooth. We just and cheers. Cheers. Welcome back to the office. I'm glad to be back. Hopefully this doesn't last too longer. So we when initially when we tasted the rum, I mean it is just you're right, very very smooth, very clean, and I almost feel like a bit of a piney taste at the back of my throat. But do you know Buckley's? When you have Buckley's and it hits the back of your throat and it mm. kind of sits there, that taste, it almost feels like that for me. Yeah, you feel like you feel a slight, a slight heat at the back of your throat. That's right. Long, long yeah. after you've swallowed, and it just—it's a nice sort of just gentle, warm feeling. Yeah. This is, we'll say right now, a great rum to be drinking neat as we are. Probably wouldn't be bad with a little bit of ice. I'll probably have to do an experiment after this recording to find out what it's like mixed with something. But like, this is a great thing to just drink on its own. Yeah, it's really smooth. So yes, thank you, Mount Kay, for this amazing rum that you have made. As a, I guess, a way to get started talking about you, you told me a cool thing about people from Barbados, because this is this is a rum from Barbados, yeah. uh, what I would call a Barbudan rum. Yeah. But you immediately said, when I told you that, you said like, oh, you meant... Bayesian. Bayesian. Yeah. As a different way. So... And that's just uh, for myself. I, I was, uh, I grew up in Trinidad. My mom was actually born in Barbados. So in the West Indies, when we refer to different people in the islands, like people from Barbados are Bayesians. Mm-hmm. It's just a colloquial term. And I'm sure there's, you know, Barbunan is probably the correct way to say it. Mm-hmm. But locally, everyone refers to us as Bayesians. Also a phenomenal country. If you've ever, have you ever had a chance to go? Absolutely stunning little island. It's just a, blo- uh, a brick of, of limestone in the middle of the ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, just, it, it's windswept, beautiful white stone everywhere. Really, really gorgeous. I remember going there when I was 14 for a vacation. And the sailing is incredible. The diving and waters are fantastic. And when you're along the, it's the west coast of the island, or the east coast of the island, sorry, where it's really driven by the oceans. You have these gorgeous caves and cliffs that score like, I think, 50, 60 feet into the air. Mm -hmm. It's really, really stunning and breathtaking. Sounds amazing. Yeah, it really was. Yeah, I can't say I've never been to the Caribbean, anywhere in the Caribbean, I don't think. So that sounds like something I'd definitely, a place I would like to go 
one day. Yeah, absolutely. Well um, worth the trip. But yeah, you you're, you yourself are from Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, yeah, I grew up there. I was uh, actually born in Guyana in South America. Right. And um, my mom and dad were there. My dad's from Guyana. And when I was about six years old, we moved from Guyana into uh, to Trinidad. <laughs> we, re- we kind of immigrated back to Trinidad where my mom was from. <laughs> and it was uh, interesting, interesting time because it was just as, you know, kind of when you have cognizant memory of yourself and who you are and where you've been. And so that's Trinidad's kind of the place where I really grew up and, and rooted myself as a whole human being. So the, the formative years. Yeah. I guess I never really asked. Your, why did you move? Why did you, the family move from Guyana to Trinidad? So that's an that's an interesting story and stuff. I, there are all these things that I end up learning about it whenever I go, whenever I have conversations with my parents about it, because they never really talk to us. You know, like come on, we're moving, we're going on vacation. Hey, now we're staying. <laughs> you know, when we moved from Guyana to Trinidad, and uh, as we, as I was having a conversation with my dad, uh, probably about two years ago, and I was talking about it and asking him. Know, why did we actually move and what had happened and what the predecessor to that was and he explained to me that you know at the time when he was a young man and left he went to university at McGill University mm-hmm. uh, studied chemical engineering uh, did his honors returned to Guyana and mm-hmm. moved into management and right. so he was managing the bauxite plants and the development of bauxite, which is a raw material they use to make aluminum. I was trying to think yeah. about which metal do you get from bauxite. And I always, I always debate whether it's called aluminum or aluminium. <laughs> so I have my my family's all very resonantly English. Yeah, for the most part. My dad especially would always say that the the English way was first. What does that mean? For most words, in which there's a difference between the, the English way because people always say it was the oldest. One exception. He will say is for aluminum or aluminium and the reason for that is because aluminum didn't really exist as uh, a commonly available metal until the colonization of the new world so in that light it was probably more likely someone in the americas that first gave it that that's name. That fiction, that so yeah. he, he will he will concede that it was probably more than likely an American that first gave it that name, and therefore the American word for it is probably the original. <laughs> so, well, you know, so my my dad, like I said, he was managing those um, those plants and manufacturing, shipping and exporting for them. Mm-hmm. And as he developed in his career, he eventually worked in the trade side. So he went on a trade delegation to you know ship and export the raw products out to places like China and Guyana, mm-hmm. because Guyana is one of the larger producers of it in the world of what they bauxite right. as a raw material. After he did that, the Prime Minister at the time, if I remember, George Burnham or James Burnham, he was, uh, he kind of saw him as a little bit of a rising, young rising star and, and picked him to be his representative. So after that, my dad uh, kind of traveled with diplomatic privileges for mm-hmm. the rest of his career there. And he was also assigned a as a prefect for one of the regions. Prefect is not a familiar word for me. That it's means... a it's a so essentially he was like a mini mayor of a district okay. of of today district for Demerara where I was born. And as he described to me historically, he said he goes, yeah, it's not you were there to manage and control what the prime minister's objectives were. Mm-hmm. He was 
bit of an authoritarian. <laughs> and so we, we, we got exposed to that kind of circle and had a lot of privileges and values. But it wasn't something when they wanted to, I think politically, the country became very unstable, as most dictators tend to be, um, and they wanted to leave. Um, but that wasn't a thing that you could just do, right? Right. Uh, he would not permit someone to leave. And he told me a story of one of his, uh, a colleague of his, who had said he was going to leave and travel back to, um, I think, his wife's home country of Jamaica or somewhere like that in the West Indies. And upon trying to exit, he said that there was a, uh, a file against him saying that he hadn't paid his taxes and he owed $150,000. And in 1975, that's like saying, you know, owe a million dollars in taxes. That's a lot of money he didn't have. Exactly. That nobody had. Right. So he subsequently ended up in jail. <laughs> right. So it wasn't something you could just do. You can just deport and leave the country. Mm -hmm. So uh, the way they did it was a bit cloak and dagger. My mom took the kids, my, my brother and my sister and I, and she went on vacation, in finger quotes, mm -hmm. uh, to Trinidad to visit, his, visit her father. Right. And when she, once she got there, he was going to, he had to have somebody purchase a ticket under a different person's name mm -hmm. who was never going to show up. And at the very last minute, he, the morning of, he would get a permit for travel from a friend of his who worked in the immigration office who would pass this along but he knew once he passed that along it would trigger a response for an inquiry so he had to pick up that ticket eight o'clock in the morning drive out to the airport get to the airport claim the ticket of this person who was never going to show up and then jump on the plane and take off before anyone figured it out and it all worked perfectly <laughs> without a hitch oh well you know when when i when he kind of describes it i'm like that sounds like kind of like a born identity <laughs> kind of scenario and he's like he goes yeah when you think about it, it kind of was because it was all very cloak and dagger and you had to have friends and keep it very very quiet to be able to execute it and be able to leave the country without having some kind of punitive management measures in place did he get some kind of like mysterious letter after that point after they realized he was gone uh it took a few years before he could go back <laughs> it took quite a while before he could go back he's gonna change in government a, a couple changes in government yeah for sure right. and uh but anyway he once we did that, then we moved to Trinidad, and you know my dad continued working there at a company called Neil and Massey, where he was the general manager and they manufactured uh, Toyotas. Oh, yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, so that was a little, a little side note, side story. Right, and I'm guessing that because your your dad had already had familiarity with Canada from studying at McGill. That's right. That was the the bridge that eventually would bring him to Canada. Correct. Yeah. So he immigrated to um, Canada after my parents were divorced, mm -hmm. and he was doing his reset. And you know, a few years later, I followed when I was about seventeen, and I moved to Canada. And uh, I had Oshawa at the time. It was the first place I landed. Right. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. Yeah. Well, I've I've known you for a few years now, four or five now. Uh, five years. Yeah. Is it five years? Yeah. So I know what you do, but maybe you'd like to share a little bit with everyone else what it is that you're, what it is that you do. So I always try to make sure that I describe that I'm, first of all, I'm an entrepreneur. Right. And the best follow-up question I've ever had was from a tour guide in New York when I was doing the Bridge. And he said, so 
please be specific as to what things and in what capacities do you do them <laughs> because I do several things. So first and foremost, I run a, I founded a co-working space called My Byward Office, which uh, we're going to be rebranding to MBO Coworking. Right. Uh, hopefully by the end of this month. Is the rebrand the rebrand's not quite yet complete? No, it's just a website that's waiting. Everything else is finished. I see. Yeah, okay. Yeah, the coffee's all done. Everything's. I just before I came in here, I was working on dubbing out a few additional pages. Right. So, so I run a co-working space, mm-hmm. and then I also do consulting. So I help businesses, usually corporate governments, uh, with service to design and operations. So if they need to do audits of their systems or processes or implement service systems, mm-hmm. that's kind of what I do from, from that side. And then the other one, which is really my passion, my love, is the coaching. So specifically startup coaching. Yeah, you've, I think you've been doing that for a few years now. You've seen at least a number of people that have come in with business ideas and come ahead and sit down with you. Yeah. Some, some of them, uh, some of them I still, I'll still see working away six months later, some not. Yeah, and you know, and you know, honestly, some of the people that have, most of the people who have come to me for coaching or guidance around startups, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a bit of a niche thing and it's something that you have to sometimes figure out whether it's the right idea. And if you're actually able to execute it, uh, very often I provide people with some preliminary guidance mm-hmm. in terms of what is actually required for their idea and how to actually execute it. Right. And I think the, the big benefit is that for me and the guidance that I'm able to provide is that I see seen hundreds and hundreds of businesses of every different description, mm-hmm. you know, from service business to products uh, to SaaS companies to you know, physical brick and mortar production, delivery sites, and retail. Mm-hmm. So I can provide the best practices and values from all those different business types and the experiences that I've seen those people do, mm-hmm. how their marketing works, how their sales, how they bring to market their strategies, their financials. Right. I can provide a pretty broad cross-section in terms of what what it is actually required to start a business. All the figuring out, just mapping out all the work. Here's how you get started. Here's how you get that first customer. And here's how you take it That's all right. from there, right? Yeah, and I mean, it all comes down to the actual formula that you use. The, the main principles or pillars that you have in any business are all the same. It doesn't matter what kind of business it is. You need to understand who your customers, what they're willing to pay for the product, mm-hmm. um, what is required for you to be able to develop, develop and deliver and service the product, mm-hmm. um, and what your marketing and sales strategy is going to be. You know, once you kind of have those things in place, the rest of it's fairly straightforward. Mm-hmm. And what I try to work with them, uh, entrepreneurs to do is to really not just tell them how to do it, but teach them how to do it. So it's more of the teach a person to fish strategy right. than just telling them what to do. And I always, I am always really pleased when I get you know cohorts who have worked with before in the past, and they come back to me and they say, "Hey, I have a new business idea. Mm-hmm. Here's my business plan. Can you review it with me?" And we go through it, and they've just nailed everything. You know, that just tells me that, you know what, I've done my job well. And they are informed and educated about what it's required to start a business and they're effective entrepreneurs. Right, because they've, they've mastered all like, this is what I have to do regardless of what the business is. So you get to talk about, address the exciting stuff about this is the specific product or service. These are the, the fun details that hopefully will, will draw in the kind of person that they're, they're looking to sell to. Precisely, so it's more just putting some, you know, shine on the boot more than anything else. Yeah. 
that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And you've done you've done that with all kinds of people because I think seem to recall like I think most of the entrepreneurs that I, I've seen around the office have usually been people that have that are that have already had, had a good career. Um, and are maybe looking to branch out or try something new, but you've also worked with students. You've done at least a couple of, a bit of work with like student incubators, if I remember correctly. Yeah, a number. With the student incubators, I've worked with Ottawa University and Carleton University. Mm-hmm. So Carleton has the Hatch program, which is a phenomenal program for entrepreneurship. Ottawa University has Legacy Team, which is run by an actress. Mm-hmm. So I, every year I mentor the executive director of the of the Legacy program and Legacy for our listeners are it's a student-run organization for that promotes entrepreneurship and people leading their visions. Mm-hmm. So it's a place where people who have ideas or want to live an experience and leave a mark on the world, mm-hmm. they come to be motivated by public speak by not public speakers but speakers from some of the top companies in the world. So they have speakers coming in from, I remember, the founder of Rotten Tomato, the person who developed, designed and developed Surrey, the person who designed and developed Shazam. You get some of the, you know, David's Tees, and you get people coming in from Microsoft and all these other leading companies, some of the biggest thinkers in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shopify, Toby's woken up and to be able to help to motivate the next generation of entrepreneurs and thinkers and leaders of the world. Yeah, because at the end of the day, they all start with the same way. It's one person, maybe a couple of people with an idea. That's right. And, you know, with that, I usually mentor and coach with a lot of those, the younger students, etc., to help them kind of develop their ideas. Right now, I'm working with uh, Invest Ottawa to do exactly that, mm-hmm. um, to help them with some of their student entrepreneurs. I've also worked with Junior Achievement, which is here in Ottawa, a JA program, which are high school students. We're starting businesses and I coach and mentor them. So that's all part of my volunteer time. For people that are maybe not familiar, Invest Ottawa, he is sort of, I guess, like community plus government yeah, initiative program. Of it's some, of a certain it's by Ottawa. So they are, their objective or their mandate is to uh, promote entrepreneurship business within mm-hmm. the Ottawa community. So they encourage large organizations to come in and set up a head office or a satellite office in Ottawa. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also have a strong mandate where they are responsible for helping to promote innovation and entrepreneurship within the city so they help companies kind of get started and get their foothold as well yeah because i've seen they i think i've been to a couple of them like workshops on like heroes like the 101 on accounting accounting yeah accounting was the first thing that came to my mind yeah you know like accounting's always a base yeah Uh, you get accounting you get them you get courses on i'm thinking intellectual property rights they have courses on marketing they have Courses on sales, mm-hmm. all the different things that you would need, and they most of them providing you qualify are free to be able to access some of those things. Yeah, yeah. It basically, it's an investment in helping incubate and start new new small businesses in Absolutely. the city. Yeah. yeah. So uh, you know, as we're speaking, you know, so that's one segment that I do. Then I also coach startups for people who just sometimes come in with an idea, mm-hmm. and they say, "No, hey, I have this idea, this business that I'd like to develop," and we start structuring it and designing it and developing it from there. Also, some individuals are a little bit further along the process and they already have an idea. They mm-hmm. already have a lot of it meshed out, but they sometimes need to put it through some additional rigor to put some specific tangible details around it. So that could be a business plan review or a business canvas mm-hmm. and doing a full review and really making sure that we hone the message and the idea and the concept and the delivery of it. 
so that when they're ready to deliver, it can really be executed effectively. What do you find are like the, I was going to say like the, the biggest obstacles, but I, I'm, I guess I'm curious as to know about what are the like the big breakpoints where the light can, goes off in the person. It's just like, well, this will work. Oh, this is not going to work. Yeah. So that's usually when you start looking at the financials, right? Uh, if you tie your financials and your service design together, mm-hmm. so it's okay. These are the, we need A, B, C, D mm-hmm. to be able to deliver. How are we going to accomplish them? Who do we need to access as partners? What are the resources we're going to access? And then really put a practical, realistic cost to those things. Once you do that, and then you say, okay, great. So this is what it's going to cost to deliver. Is this price point that you were thinking actually going to work? Right. right? If you, you know, and with any business, there has to be margin on anything that you, that you design and then deliver. Otherwise, you can't make money. Otherwise, it's just a hobby. Right. And there's a big difference between a hobby, a side hustle, and a business. Right. Right. And I know that there's often very two different schools of, there are some businesses that are, people have a bit of money on hand and they, like we call yeah. it bootstrapping. Although I've, I've always found that really curious because the, the, the concept of bootstrapping is actually odd because the, the expression pull oneself up by their bootstraps yeah. was, is meant as an expression of doing something impossible because it's not actually, you're not actually able to do that back when bootstraps were actually a well, thing. Well, that's what, well, when you think of entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. right? That's what it's about. It's right. about doing things that are new and unseemingly impossible. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I started my business seven years ago, most people told me it'll never work. It can't happen. And I remember a couple of those people. Yeah, exactly. I won't, I won't name any names, <laughs> but I can remember a couple of people. But it wasn't, as we as time's gone on, I would say that it wasn't so much that people said it was impossible, but those people were not your customers, and therefore they didn't really have any understanding of what the value was that you could bring. Correct. Uh, so that is true, and I think that's true even today. But I think some of those individuals, it was more that they didn't understand the concept and how it would work because no one had done it before. Mm-hmm. And if no one had done it before and they didn't have a frame of reference, it was not, it, it wasn't, a, if I can draw a very simple example, mm-hmm. I'm selling rum. Well, mm-hmm. no one's ever made rum before. So that's never going to work. Everyone drinks vodka and gin. Why would you drink a brown liquor? All liquors are white mm-hmm. and clear. So why would you drink that? That's never going to work. But until somebody does it, proves it, tests it, and is able to successfully market and communicate it and gets that message and gets the value proposition out to the customers, eventually you get the really majority starting to adopt and agree and understand. But nobody actually wants to be the first person who says, I think that idea is crazy and it's going to work. It's, it's, always, it's always risky being, what, what do we call that in the cycle of first adopter, right? Yeah, yeah, it's always risky being, and most people just don't want to do that. So when you start a new business, especially when it's a new business idea and concept, mm-hmm. it's usually very difficult for people to kind of get behind it because they don't know if you're going to be a winning team. Right. And that, that's, that's I think, the thing that for the other freelancers that are that are listening, that's was always the biggest hurdle that we all had to get over yeah. was we're trying this thing. We have no idea who was going to pay us. Yeah. But I think a lot of freelancers, they, they start out or maybe, maybe just starting as a side hustle and saying it's like, hey, was, is anybody ever going to want to pay money for me doing or creating this thing? Yes, that's right. And, you know, it's, it, and I think the risk for what I do, especially setting up a co-working space, is just it's physical resources and places, right? So you got to get leases, you got to buy furniture, you got to paint walls. So there is a hard sunk cost 
you know, that's a pretty big hurdle that you have to overcome first before you can even bring the first customer in the door yeah. to be able to validate that, that, that assumption. I should maybe put a photo up along with this podcast episode because you, you put a lot of time and effort into making the co-working space. Yeah. It's gorgeous. And you, I think you designed, like you thought out and designed just about every square inch of the, of the office space. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean that—that that was the you know, the first concept, you know, just understanding what I wanted to do and philosophically, mm-hmm. and that's where it started. You know, it just started with okay, what's my philosophy of how I was going to design my business? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I had was I'm co-working was super super early in those days, mm-hmm. uh, so the only types of spaces I had as examples were people that took an old abandoned building, threw Wi-Fi in it, and said, "Hey, co-working, come and work with work here," and I thought it was, you know from a service and quality perspective, pretty garbage. Right. Or you had these massive monolithic 80,000 square feet of boardrooms and cubicles <laughs> set up. We're gonna come back right to that to the moment. Yeah. Um, we're gonna stop and just do a quick break mm-hmm. and we will continue with this in just a moment. With Eric McRae talking about entrepreneurship, covertly leaving a dictatorship in South America, and starting your own business. Um, before we left off, you were talking a little bit about the, the design work that you put into the co-working space. Yeah, so you know, instead of having those very large monolithic kind of open spaces, I wanted to have something that was very unique. Mm-hmm. I had a specific customer in mind, which was a creative person. I wanted people that were creative and successful who had been doing what they were doing for 10 or 15 years and wanted to be able to come in and have a great space to work and be productive while there. So I started designing and researching things like what materials and surfaces are effective for working, what color palettes, what orientations and facings. So the, and I also identified that I didn't want to have these massive spaces with a hundred people in it. Because once you do that, you start losing your perspective of community Mm-hmm. and you start to become just a number in a cog. And I never wanted anybody to come into the space and have that feeling. So the entire space was designed with that intent in mind that allowed people privacy to be able to work, mm-hmm. um, ability to be able to isolate themselves from noise and sound, but still have people around them that wasn't going to be distracting. And I think for people not familiar with co-working that, that end up hearing about it, the a lot of, especially I guess in the last few years, maybe not so much now, was often talked about co-working in the context of WeWork, which is to bring it back to like, there's the two kinds of businesses, the one of like the boot, of bootstrapping that we were talking about before. Mm-hmm. And then there's businesses that, get, that, either, that either end up or can only be started with the use of investor capital, yeah. of which I, WeWork is, yeah. is like the poster child and and the the company that is for the longest time was a byword for co-working but that's a very different kind of co-working from the co-working that you and so many other uh, small and medium-sized co-working businesses around the world engage in that's right anyway there are thousands of co-working spaces that do the the community-based co-working that's mm-hmm. the way i describe it we work i describe more as a business center right it's a funky business it's they took the feel and look and the designs that all the co-working spaces around, the individual boutique co-working spaces had developed, mm-hmm. and took that style, look and feel, and manufactured it for the masses. But I don't know that, and I've been into a few of them, I've talked to a lot of customers who've been into them and worked in them, and 
many consumers of them, the challenge that they have is they are they never are able to actually retain that sense of community because they don't have that objective and focus built into their kind of built into their DNA. They don't have that in their mission, vision, value. They're not there for the community. They're there to market to sell a product, ultimately. Right. Like at a certain size, some, something about community, there's something about community about just being able to remember maybe not everyone's name, but most people's names. Yeah. There's a certain size of which that clearly becomes really difficult to do. Yeah. But if you, I mean, if you look at how many millions of customers WeWork has, mm -hmm. they can hopefully in any way, shape, or form remember people's names. Right. No, in no meaningful way. And that's, I think, I feel like that's kind of, there's maybe not the only distinction, but a really important one between a community-based and the business center model of is spending the time remembering it's, it's Eric or Casey yeah. uh, and like people that you see every day and that you don't know a whole lot about, but you can remember at least a couple of details. That matters. As and opposed, it does. Yeah. And, well, it does to the type of consumer that you have. So depending on the type of consumer that and what they are looking for, mm -hmm. some people, you know, they are far more interested with being serviced in a way that works well for them and kind of fits their values. And when, especially when you're looking at something for, like for me, I was looking for people who were creative. So I didn't want a whole bunch of financial advisors running around my office. You know, I wanted people who were artists and musicians and sculptors and painters and designers and architects. Mm -hmm. And I think for the most part that I tend to attract those types of individuals because they are far more interested in the analog, organic kind of growth and feeling and connection that they have with the thing. You know, if I think about just like personally, mm -hmm. it's one of the things I love about vinyl. I know that vinyl is a horrible investment of my money. You know, for $12, I can access all the music I could ever want all day long on Spotify or Apple Music or whatever it is. But I collect it because there is an intimacy and connection that you get from having that experience of purchasing a product in that way. And when you do, you really engage with the artist and the service and the product and the creativity that goes into it. And that was more in line with what I wanted to create for my customers. But you definitely, it, it worked. You've had, we've got developers and app people up there right now. Yeah. Um, even as we're having this conversation, you, there's designers, yeah, so they keep like a lot of app developers have come through that. A lot yeah. of a lot of startup apps have had their start worked out of there. But engineers are all creatives, right? Yeah, it, they just have a very prescribed methodology of how they do it. Yeah. you know, I've also had Jeff. You know, he's an animator. Yeah, right? Jeff. Uh, Jeff White is yeah. what does he do? He just story. He's a storyboard artist. Yeah, he's a storyboard artist. Yeah. He does cartoons. You know, I've had yourself. I've had three other writers mm -hmm. uh, who've come in and written their books and poetry and things like that because they needed that kind of space that allowed them to be able to focus but not necessarily and have people around them and have a creative energy around them without it being intrusive into their work. People that are need to get a lot of work done but they want to, they're working alone. They don't necessarily want to be alone while they're working. They don't want to be isolated, right? And even when we think of some of the individuals that have come in and I, I look back one of the things that I always appreciate is when they leave mm -hmm. or they come in or even if they're in for a day or maybe a week or a year mm -hmm. and they always say, I've never been more productive than I have been when I'm here. And very often I don't even think that they are cognizant of the reasons why. 
that is. And it could be the amount of light in the room, it could be the, you know, I have three different surfaces of desks that they can work on, mm -hmm. whether it's a large live edge slab, whether it's a white clear table with nothing, or it's a small, cozy, eclectic kind of desk. Mm -hmm. But each of those appeal to people differently and elicit a different response and allows them to focus in their own way. And I think as part of my design, that was very, very intentional. Uh, even though people aren't aware of it, they still experience it and they still value that experience even though they're not necessarily cognizantly aware that they gravitated to, to the large white desk because that was what they needed to clear their mind to be able to focus on the thing that they wanted to do and accomplish. It's not really, when it's there, it works. And the only way that you ever can ever figure out that it mattered is if you take it away and you notice that there's a difference. And sometimes they don't even notice, they don't necessarily know what the difference is. So, you know, that's kind of how I, I look at businesses for the most part when we're, especially when we're doing coaching. You need to have a clear understanding of how that product or service resonates with your consumer. How does it make them feel? Uh, because if you don't understand that, you don't, you're not going to be able to ever motivate somebody to buy. Right? And ultimately, that's what you want. People very often believe that they make decisions rationally and analytically, and they look at the numbers and they make sure that they have value, because that's the last thing that they do in the buying process. So they root themselves on that is why they've made their decision, opposed to the reality of it is they initially engage with a, a product or service because it makes them feel a certain way. And then look for the justification after the fact of thing. I know this feels good. Yeah. Now I, now I also have some really solid logical reasons to back it up. Correct. The logical reasons are, are just their internal justification. That's what they need to do to right. be able to, to feel good about making the decision and not feel like they have actually done their due diligence mm -hmm. to validate that this is the right decision. It's kind of like if you buy a car, right? Some people will buy a Chevy and they, or they'll buy a Jeep or they'll buy a Mercedes or they'll buy a Chrysler and each of them have validated that they have made the right decision based on their criteria. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, all it has done has been based on initially is how do they feel about that product? Mm -hmm. And then they justify how they, they find the information to validate and justify their purchasing decision that supports their feelings. And if we can understand that when working with startups and businesses when you're trying to develop a business, that's really instrumental to be able to understand that notion and get it and nail it because that's what's going to allow you to be able to, I want to say, convince your consumers to mm -hmm. purchase your product. If you don't understand what motivates them, you'll have a very hard time selling to them because throwing numbers at them is not going to make a difference. And the only time that makes a difference is if you have the cheapest price. So for me, this is all very familiar, but I'm, I think I'm maybe, I'm curious as to like hear your take about like, how would you go about that process of, of finding out what motivates a client when you're when you're trying out building a new business, whether it's just like a freelancer or whether you're trying to start up something? So when I when I speak to my my clients about that, my coaching clients about how to do that, it usually starts with a series, uh, a very broad question of understanding what it is that the consumer is looking for, what is the problem that you're going to solve for them. You need, then need to understand you put up you create we'll call them personas, we create 10 different personas of the customers. You identify that those 10 uh, customer types, uh, which were the ones that have the lowest threshold for you to be able to 
develop and uh, deliver a product. Once you de develop what the lower threshold is, you build your, they call MVP or MMP, minimal marketable product, thing that you can actually take out and sell. You know, I have a shoe and it has laces. Do you want to buy my shoe? Do you need shoes? Yes or no? Once you identify and validate that, then you go to, you develop cases under each that you start to test and, and identify whether or not your assumptions about that consumer, their behaviors and patterns are actually qualified. And it means that you have to actually have to document it. You actually have to have a process of designing it, narrowing your scope to what's actually relevant to your customer, what actually is brings value to them and how much they're willing to pay for it. Once you kind of have those things narrowed, then you can start to look at your customer profile and say, okay, now let's talk specifically about what it is are your motivators, what exactly are your needs, what are the different features and benefits that you need to see in the product as we evolve. And for the entrepreneur, it, logically that makes sense and it sounds simple and straightforward and easy. But when you're in it, it's very, very difficult to actually see the minutiae and the details of it. So part of what I do is I help people actually go through that process so that they, because I have that bird's eye view, right? I don't have an emotional or invested interest in what's, uh, what they're doing. So I can call to question, I can challenge, and I can support them as they go through that journey of discovery. I think the big challenge that we often face is, as far as the copywriters are concerned, is often we're very interested in, oh, can we talk to one of your clients? Yes. Because there's probably a few copywriters that specialize in startups, but a lot of us are working with pre-established companies that already have like an established customer base that, that like buying from them. And then you go and say, oh, can we talk to them? And then there's a surprising number of companies out there that will go, we've it's just like, that. we've never done that. <laughs> oh no, don't talk to the customer. They may, something, they may say something bad. Yeah, and, and you're right. And that even though, so even if you have an established company that has a, a large customer base who's done that. The individuals who now managing and responsible for the delivery and the service of that product may not have actually ever had the need, the luxury to actually even think about it because they were given a job and they were given a customer base and they were like, here's your hammer and here's your nails and now go, you know, nail some boards together. And they had a process, but the person who started that business absolutely had to do that. They absolutely had to validate. They absolutely had to test. And one of the things I remember speaking to an entrepreneur is very successful, has done very well. He taught me a lot about what it meant to be an entrepreneur, and that was uh, Paul, Paul Costa. He said when he started his business, he ran, he runs a, a media business. So he writes content that is SEO optimized for the web and for search. And the way he started that business was he was working in pharmaceuticals and he got into this and he said he was talking to a physician and he was saying, hey, you know what, do you have this index book of all the drugs and medications and reactions and everything? He goes, would that be helpful for you if I took that and put it on a CD, in a database, and that way you can just query instead of flipping through this big book, you can put that CD-ROM on your computer and just query it and find all the information you need. And he's like, yeah, that'd be great because I'm willing to pay you this much. And he's like, okay, because that's enough. He goes, if I can get 100 people, 100 physicians to pay me for the CD at that price, that's worth me putting that CD together. So he built it. And as people started using it, he evolved and iterated. And then eventually one of the physicians that he'd worked with for a long time said, you know what, you really know a lot about pharmaceuticals and how this works. I'm working on this paper that I'm writing, but 
you kind of have the expertise. Can you do a first and second draft of this? And then I'll finish it off. I'll give you, I'll give you draft one. Can you clean it up and give it some structure and then give that to me? And that's how his content management business started, was he started writing copy and content for physicians. And then the content started to get traction on the web because it was well-written, well-curated. And then he learned how to do SEO and integrate that into his work. And then he's just started saying, well, if one physician would write it, why can I not just write this copy? So I'm going to write about simple things. How is red wine good for your health? I'll write a copy. And then people started renting it. He's built a multi-billion, multi-million dollar business out of writing SEO copy. And he, his clients are like Yahoo News and Google and all the medical journals. They're all buying his copy from him. And so he started off selling databases in CD format. And now he's a copy, he's a media media producer. I found that very interesting because it, the, the, the first problem, it sounds like, that he was really solved for his clients was, was time. Yes. He solved the time problem of, it's been a long time, but I know that book that he's talking about. It's a really interesting book to read. All the ways that, all the ways that drugs can kill you. But yeah, that sounds like here's a real big time saver. You no longer need to go flip through this book. Now you just type it into the computer and you've got your answer. Yeah. And it, the, the key thing for him was he was listening to what his customers' needs were, right? He listened to what his customers' needs were. He, he stopped listening. He stopped trying to impose his ideas mm-hmm. of what he was trying to sell. He stopped trying to sell CDs. And he just said, what is it? What is a problem that you have? And how can I help you solve it? And he built a solution to that. And then everyone else was just like, hey, I want some of that too. Yep, that's right. You know, $23 million a year later. I don't think you've ever talked to me about about him before. Is no, 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 Paul Costa. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't think I have. I don't think we have to talk about him. At least not on this podcast. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's really cool. But um, you know, when we kind of back to what we were talking about before in terms of mentoring, coaching, helping businesses, mm-hmm. it's having those kinds of experiences and that understanding of how businesses structure, how they work, how consumers work. Like when someone that you know about it probably not as yet, uh, eight. Mm-hmm. when uh, Elias first came into the office, you know, one Saturday and I ran into him mm-hmm. and I kind of talked him through the process of what it would require to start his business. And Abate is essentially a, a payment system, but it's designed specifically for restaurants. So what we figured out was, yeah, anybody can pay, pay for something online. That's a hard thing to do. What was going to be the differentiator and what was going to be the issue that the problem that we're going to solve for the consumers was removing the pain point of waiting for the bill. You go to a restaurant, it takes on average 12 to 15 minutes to get your bill. The person brings you the bill and they go, great. You want to pay by cash or debit? You're like, debit. Great. I got to go get the machine. And then they're back 15, five minutes later. Sometimes um, it's 15. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, exactly. So, you know, but on average, 12 to 15 minutes is what it takes to be able to pay a bill in the restaurant. Right. That 15 minutes is also cumulative for the restaurant. 15 minutes times 40 tables means how many tables, additional tables, could they have seated in that time with the extra eight hours of seating that they missed. Just for those of you that aren't familiar, App Aid is now live. Where is it offered? It's all over the They're, country now. It's all yeah, over Canada. They, so they've grown. They started in Ottawa. They've kind of anchored with about 60 locations here in Ottawa, local restaurants, etc. Mm-hmm. And they've just recently signed some deals where they've gone national. 
mm-hmm. uh, with uh, with um, like East Side Barrio, which is kind of how to be rolling it out right. across the nation, piloting it with that group, and then they'll be adding other restaurants from the chain, and another deal where they've also signed up a, another restaurant consortium in the U.S. that will literally in overnight add thousands of restaurants. So if you go to one of these restaurants, you sit down, you eat, you can see your bill on your phone in real time. When you're done, you click pay and walk out. You right. never have to wait for a bill again. I've tried it a few times. It's a great app. Yes. If yeah. you happen to walk into a restaurant in Canada or I guess in the U.S. Yeah. and you see the App 8 logo on the door, highly recommend downloading their app. Give it a go. It's really easy to use. As Eric mentioned, yeah, it can save you a ton of time. Yeah, it saves you, it saves you a ton of time, makes the process easy and seamless for you, as well as it improves the operational efficiencies for the businesses that are using it. So when we talked about that, it was understanding what the real value was that the consumer, because we had two parts, you had the businesses that were going to be using it, right, which is your customer, and then you had your clients. Mm-hmm. Uh, and your clients were the users, people right. who had a, a, an app account. And it was, for me, that's usually where I start with businesses like that, where you need to make sure that you have very clear personas for each of them, because right. very often people conflate the two, right? They think because they build an app that everyone's going to use it. And in reality, nobody cares. Well, this has all been really cool. So yeah. thanks for, for all of this. I guess before we head out here, you've been doing coaching now for and co-working business now for probably what nigh on a decade now uh yeah so i've been well i've been coaching entrepreneurs for the last seven years because i was part of the community i always gave my advice away right and as i developed i learned and i should want to always want to share that knowledge and information and before that you know my 14 years in corporate i was always coaching my leadership teams so the managers and senior managers within the organizations that I worked at was constantly coaching them. So I've been coaching really for about 25 years now of my career. I guess the last question for you is, what's next? What would you like to be doing from here on? So the next thing that I'm going to be I'm working on is I want to be able to really bring that to a much broader cross-section of people and have that information and knowledge, which I've always wanted to be accessible. With that, I'm going to be delivering a course online. In the next year, I'm going to be also running courses that I'm going to be running quarterly. And then I'll also be doing individual coaching for as people need. So if people need that focus and guidance, I'll be there to provide that to them. That's really, really cool. I look forward to seeing more about that. Amazing. Anyway, thank you very much, Eric. And cheers. Andrew, thank you very much for the drink. Thank you. It was a pleasure. It was. Mount Gay, fantastic rum. Fantastic rum. 10 out of 10 would drink again. <laughs>